This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. When we first saw Professor Dumbledore give Harry Potter an invisibility cloak, we all thought, I'd like one of those, please. It may not be as impossible as we once imagined. This week, I'm joined by Dr. David Ginger, the Alvin L. and Verla R. Quirum Endowed Professor of Chemistry at the University of Washington. He is also a Washington Research Foundation Distinguished Scholar and the Chief Scientist at the University of Washington's Clean Energy Institute. He specializes in the physical chemistry of materials with applications in energy, electronics, and sensing. In other words, a magician. He joins us this week to explain how the intersection of light and electrons is changing and will continue to change our world. So join us for the conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on Earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Professor David Ginger, welcome to the QTS Experience. Well, thanks for having me. My great pleasure. So um, to dive right into it, I'm fascinated. There's so many areas we could get going. I'm fascinated with material science, how chemistry is being used in new ways. And, and specifically, I thought maybe we could start off with explaining what is modern optoelectronic materials, or IMOD, which is a little bit of your lab. And um, uh, let's just start there to help us, me and my audience, get an understanding of that. Yeah, well, there's, a, there's already a bunch of topics to unpack there. I mean, <laughs> materials, materials underpins, in, in, in my world, materials underpin society. And, and we've, right. uh, you know, we've had, uh, we've been discussing civilization for generations that way. Right? We have the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, the Iron Age. And people talk about this being the information age, but other people talk about it being the silicon age, right? It's the right. revolution of, of materials in silicon that enables a lot of IT. And so uh, you said get right into IMOD. Well, that's, yeah. that's focusing on materials and a specific class of materials um, uh, for optoelectronics. So converting <clears throat> electricity to light and, and light to electricity. So, I mean, we're looking at each other over, over displays on this call. And, and our digital signals are traveling over fiber optic cables, and all of those are optoelectronic technologies. So, um, so what's IMOD, the Center for Integration of Modern Optoelectronic Materials on Demand? Uh, in a nutshell, it's a, it's a group of scientists. It's a center that was funded by the National Science Foundation uh, with the goal of, of transforming the material science of, of how we make all of those optoelectronic devices. Everything from these screens we're using right now uh, to how we're gonna send information uh, on optical fibers over the internet and, and maybe uh, enable uh, uh, quantum emitters for for quantum internet. So, you know, that's a lot. That's a big, big topic, but. <laughs> it's, you know, uh, the, the data center um, network nerd in me, when I think about this, I think about um, these, these two, um, these two big ideas. One is how fast information can be transmitted over light. I want to come back and talk about, ask you some questions about that in a second. But then when they get to my data center, they have to convert from a light or photon or whatever into, onto a copper wire. So I've got to go from mm -hmm. fiber or some other transportation. And it, it's like, um, 
watching a wave come in off the ocean and hit a seawall. So they come in screaming in at the speed of light and then bam, they hit this copper infrastructure. Now, before we lose most of our audience that have no idea what I'm talking about, can you help us first understand how, how light works in terms of how we use light to transmit data or whatever, you know, how, how does, what's the big idea with that? Cause that seems incredible to a lot of people. In fact, I should have known, I think I forgot, but maybe I never knew that the different, uh, light frequencies or, or light waves have different colors. I, of course mm-hmm. I learned that in high school, but I completely forgot about it. And, but anyway, how we use photons. And then once we hit the infrastructure in a home, in a data center or whatever, we've got to switch it over to copper and it slows everything uh, down. So um, can you help us understand a little bit about that science? Yeah, I'm, and just at, at a really high level, um, it's interesting that you use the, the analogy of waves crashing into a shore because uh, light is a wave. Um, oh, yeah. And, and there, it's an electromagnetic wave. And later in, later in the podcast, we'll talk about how it's also a particle, right? You've heard right. about photons, particles of light. Uh, and that's where the quantum weirdness gets in because everything is a wave and a particle at the same time. But on the, the data transmission side, uh, you can put a lot of light, a lot of electromagnetic waves into a small fiber. Mm. And one of the great things about light waves is that, uh, as you point out, the different colors, right, they, they don't talk to each other, right? You can have red light and blue light and green light all sitting on top of each other not bothering one another, not interfering constructively or destructively. Mm-hmm. And uh, because of that, you can put a whole lot of data, data into that fiber. Um, you know, one of the techniques is to put uh, different, different data streams into different colors going through that, going through a single fiber. And, and so the different colors are slightly different, right? Slightly different wavelengths of these waves. And so just like the, the sunlight that you talked about, you know, might be red, green, and blue. What's coming through that fiber is, nothing our eye can see, but is different colors. And so you can pump tons of information through. And when it hits the, when it hits the copper, there's, there's right, another optoelectronic device that converts those light signals back into electrical pulses. And uh, one electrical pulse on, the, on top of the other just starts to become static and noise. And it's yeah. harder, hard to differentiate. So you, you lose that bandwidth, you lose that, um, that frequency. And, you know, our, our Wi-Fi kind of works in the same way, right? You know, you have broader and broader regions of the spectrum and your different devices on the Wi-Fi all take a little slice of that. But right. if you have too many, they start, start interfering with one another. So this, yeah. the same, same thing happens. I, uh, earlier, well, I think it was late last year, we had somebody on the show and we're not going to go too far in it today. It's not the topic of conversation, but I thought it was really interesting was this idea of there's technologies that a number of people are kicking around with, if I'm trying to send a piece of information from Louisville to Atlanta, for example, mm-hmm. to run it over a piece of fiber or a traditional way, probably it certainly, t- at least today, is the fastest way to get something there. Mm-hmm. However, if I want to send it from Atlanta to Hong Kong, mm-hmm. what I might want to do is send it up to a satellite, shoot it through the vacuum of space mm-hmm. to another satellite, and then down to Hong Kong, we think to ourselves, that's crazy because we understand how slow sending the data up to a satellite would be, relatively mm-hmm. speaking. And they said, yeah, but the theory is to be developed, you know, industry's looking at it and others are looking at it, is that 
um, even on the ground, a packet flowing through that fiber does not actually truly travel at the speed of light because of uh, connections and other things, mm -hmm. and it's running through a subterranean fiber. But in space, in the vacuum of space, it will. Mm -hmm. And so if, you're, if the distance is, is um, far enough mm -hmm. that e even including the slow time up and the slow time down, because it's essentially instantaneous across space, to mm -hmm. uh, that target satellite, that there may be an opportunity there, which just blows my mind. You know, right when I think I've got a technology or an idea figured out, and they introduce something like that, and I, you know, we'll see if it actually makes sense. If the not just the not the just the theory, but the practicality of building the infrastructure or whatever. But have you heard anything about that? Are you familiar with this idea at all? So I don't know that specific idea of the of talking up to the satellite, but I do know the, the broader concept that how long it takes to get from point A to point B, it depends not just on how fast your train is going, but it depends on how many stops along the way, right? right? So if you go, right, uh, and right, you go through one router and then you take another hop and you go to another node and take another hop and then, oh, it gets converted back to electrical signal and then converted back to an optical signal, like all those conversion delays uh, incur a delay. I do know, you know, on the ground, and people think about these for very different reasons. Hmm. One of the things that blows my mind is, you know, the uh, been in the news, the finance traders are actually taking out some of the optical fiber links and replacing them with um, microwave links on the ground uh, because that line of sight straight distance from, you know, Chicago to New York is yeah. shorter than the fiber path that would have to wind around the highway and avoid a mountain and come down. And that small difference in the distance that it takes the, the signal to get there uh, actually makes a difference in how fast they execute the trade on the market. And uh, for high frequency traders, that makes a difference. And so they've actually invested big money in putting in microwave links for doing trading. Um, so I imagine the satellite uh, satellite argument may have uh, uh, echoes of that in it, but I don't actually know the details from your, your previous speaker, sorry. Yeah, it's pretty cool, you, you know, and you reminded me with the uh, microwave, I've heard that. I, I do believe that's um, true where it makes sense, depending upon distance and other complications. Yeah. But yes, w and one of the main is so easy to cut fiber. There are so many other interruptions mm -hmm. that can happen. And somebody said, come on now, does it really mean, because in terms of time, you're talking milliseconds of difference. And I said, well, wait a minute, how we've talked about this on the show before. How much time does Michael Phelps have to win by to win the gold medal? a butterfly wing, right? If you're yeah. the first one, if you've, especially in the age of automation and AI and other things, if I can get the trade, if I can make a decision milliseconds faster than you in certain circumstances, depending upon the volume and, you know, what we're talking about, I win. I mean, that could be the difference in millions, if not tens of millions of dollars or whatever the, the measurement is. So yeah, yeah. very compelling. And well, I think I'd say there's more compelling applications of uh, of of materials for like for what? making the world. Well, um, they're they're in everything, right? Um, not all of us make high frequency trades, but you know we all have this this iPhone, right? And uh, we all hear about or your smartphone. Yeah. You know, we all hear about uh, all the amazing software and the amazing apps on the phone, but every every part of that phone is is enabled by materials, right? The mm. computer chip we already talked about, and the memory were enabled by silicon. Uh, the the battery that we all complain about dying so fast, 20 years ago that battery wouldn't have wouldn't been able to power the phone, right? Right. Um, and uh, 
the the display, right? If we get back to the optoelectronics, right? The the displays, and you can see my kids there on the front. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the the displays are are amazing, right? They're they're full color, yet still you notice um, there's there's room for improvement. Um, and so every every bit of that is a materials challenge um, to to the touchscreen. It still amazes me. That's a piece of glass, and I touch it, and it registers where my finger touches. And it, partly because it's a conductor. So so how do I have a conductor that's transparent? Right. So I mean, you can every one of those is probably an hour long podcast in terms of a bit of material science from the battery to the the display to the the, the memory and the and the chips. But every one of those is a story of materials. Uh, and it's it's you know allowing people to do things they never did before. Um, you know I've got uh, uh, solar panels on my roof at home, mm-hmm. and that's another story of of materials uh, where by learning how to refine uh, silicon extremely to extremely pure levels over the years, we've been able to now convert sunlight directly to electricity with really high efficiency and now at, at really low cost. Uh, so um, you know those those are the applications that uh, that get me excited. On a, on a daily basis. I, I've got to believe that material, so all of it's fascinating to me. Uh, when I go into my data center, millions of square feet all over the world, when I bring somebody who's not familiar with data, data centers in, it, it, they're easily impressed. Like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And they, you know, um, to me, might be what might be impressed is how efficient we're getting at water, for example, or how mm-hmm. efficient we're getting at... Um, power consumption. We still draw about 2% power, and yet we're empowering 30 to 40% of the global digital infrastructure. And so it's it's not obvious. So those things would be really interesting to me. When you mm-hmm. go into your lab, or you work with your peers or colleagues or your um, research students, what are some of the materials that you're like, this is going to change the world? Now, in my world, it could be, again, how efficient an air handler is, which doesn't look sexy and exciting <laughs> to somebody from not in that world, but it really is in my world. For, to, it's, a, it's sexy to my investors, the environmentalists around me. You know, Everybody is really interested in that. When you go in, what are some of the things, be, and you can say photon phasers, like in Star Trek, if you want to, <laughs> But um, what are the things that are really like, wow, this is, this is going to be a big deal in the next five to 10 years? Yeah. And so I, I'll, I'll bring that back to your question about what IMOD's about and um, what we're focusing on in this center. <clears throat> and optoelectronics involves the conversion of electricity to light and back. And so, you know, one application is easy to understand, right? Displays. We're all looking at them all day long. Right. Uh, they're not perfect. Right. They use the battery on your phone. It could be more efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, they could they could be rendered in much higher definition color. Um, there's colors that you're just that you can see by eye that your your display can't render. Um, and OK, that that matters not just when you're watching the Super Bowl, but that matters when you're doing telemedicine and a physician doing telemedicine to a remote patient, maybe in a remote part of the world needs to see exactly what color that skin or that tumor or that right that. Uh, that blood clot looks like right. to be able to proceed to diagnose to operate and so rendering color accurately is is really important and and making materials that that emit light that have very precise colors uh is part of that mm. um and so there are immediate applications you've probably seen ads for quantum dot tvs and quantum dot displays what does that mean i don't know what that means so is that just a marketing term no um 
uh, I think it's a I think it's an area that's probably going to get if if I had to bet it's going to get a Nobel Prize uh, in the next you know in the next decade or so. Um, I think it certainly deserves it. Uh, people make small particles of semiconductor, the same same kind of material that you make a computer chip or a memory out of. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's not a metal. It's not an insulator. It's in between. And uh, by changing the size of those particles, you you put them in what's called the quantum confinement regime. That's a fancy way for saying that small particles have different colors than big particles. Um, and you can make the color really pure and you can tune exactly the wavelength of light, the color of light. When I say mm-hmm. wavelength, I just mean color. Mm-hmm. You can tune the wavelength of light to anywhere you want by changing the size and, and material composition of that particle. And so instead of being stuck with you know, this dye or this phosphor or that element, you can actually just dial it in and program it with with atomic precision. Um, and so red is pure red, blue is pure blue, green is pure, pure green. You can come up with any color in between. You can detect it, you can render it. <laughs> and then, you know, that's that's application number one. You want to do that as efficiently as possible with as pure a color as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and application number two, along a progression of that technology, once you can get atomic precision, you, you can control exactly how big those quantum dots are, and you can make a lot of them, you start to think, well, can I position them? Can I control emission, light emission from not just ensembles, you know, bunches of them to make a TV or to make your cell phone display, mm-hmm. but can I, can I get a single quantum dot to emit a single photon when I want it to? And if you can do that, and you, if you can do it with you know, certain criteria, you can build a, a quantum network and a quantum internet. So instead of having light pulses that have uh, m- you know, many, many you know, millions and billions of photons in them, you're sending sin- single individual photons one at a time, and you're counting them at the other end. Mm-hmm. And this is a big deal uh, because it opens up both options for optical quantum computing and also is what many people believe will be the basis for a, a totally secure quantum internet in the future. And there's a, there's a lot of math behind it, but essentially if you can transmit single photons with deterministic properties across the internet, there, there are, are known algorithms and they're actually proof of demonstration. You can buy systems like this today if you're a bank mm-hmm. um, that, that no, one, no one can hack. If someone was eavesdropping on that communication channel, you know for sure that that communication channel is compromised. And so uh, right now, a lot of that technology is used for things like quantum key distribution. And so you distribute your, your security key, mm-hmm. right? Your, your code to decoding your encrypted bank transaction, your code to decrypting your uh, encrypted uh, you know, financial record or, or tax record, whatever it is that you send over the internet that you, you don't want a hacker to read, you, you encrypt the key and then you know if the, the key to decoding that has been received uh, and no one eavesdropped on it, then you know anything else you send, even if it's um, on an unsecured channel, as long as it's using that encryption key, you're safe. Uh, And so that's just a little bit of information, but you could go beyond that, right? You could send everything and know that nothing was eavesdropped on. And there's a a really long way to go from where we are today uh, to where where a quantum internet would be in the future. And all, all of the government, the National Science Foundation, the Department of Energy, um, and all of private industry, um, uh, you know, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, are all interested 
in different aspects of, of quantum computing and quantum communication for these reasons. So it's a There's so many area. questions. I'm, I'm, <laughs> let me, let me, um, uh, I, I'm going to write down a couple of them cause I'm going to come back to them. But yeah. one of the things that, um, by way of preamble, one of the, the things that it seems to me uh, in my limited experience when I'm using light as opposed to um, I'm using a photon as opposed to an electron that there's an opportunity to um, get more power with and use less energy. Um, mm -hmm. And, and so if I'm sending a big bunch of packets of data, you, you know, over the multiplexer in my building, I can, to your point earlier, we were talking about this. Um, I can run through fiber links lots and lots and lots of data, much mm -hmm. faster, much further distances for a fraction of the power that it takes me to do that over some other medium. Yeah. And so as I'm imagining now with this internet that you're talking about, a couple things come to mind. First, what's the work behind needed to do that? Whenever I talk to folks that start talking about the idea of quantum, and I'm not sure that all of us really, by all of us, I mean non-quantum people, Mm -hmm. I'll nod my head like, I think I get it. I know it's not just ones and zeros and it's these options and it's possible. And then I'll listen to the next talk and realize I don't think I actually got it. So how <laughs> close are we to that? That's one question that I would have. And the other is kind of on the follow on to that. One of the um, conversations around Web 3.0, which is which is a more secure Internet, is one of the themes of Web 3.0. The other is that... Um, you can you you have the ability or this is a goal of it i can share my data with who i share it with and re retract it and so one of the mechanisms they think they're going to use for that is blockchain and mm -hmm. i have heard i'm not an expert in this area but that well quantum computing in theory could bro break the security around something like blockchain so when you think of a quantum internet or any of that kind of stuff. And I know that we're, we're wandering further away from quantum dots in um, yeah. optoelectronics, but do you think there's a risk there that um, the quantum internet or things like that are going to, are they going to work alongside blockchain? Is it going to make blockchain obsolete or, or ideas like that, the ledger system, or is it, are we just, is it like beta and VHS competing technologies to make a more secure internet that I can share data, keep my data private, retract data? How do you imagine that when you think about that? Yeah, the answer to that is that there's a there's a whole continuum of quantum technologies, and so one one killer application if you're a, a data scientist or or uh, uh, right a spy is is to break encryption. Mm -hmm. So today's encryption schemes rely on factoring big numbers, essentially. Right. Uh, and it's really hard for today's computers to factor really big numbers to do the math. Just takes a really long time. And so mm -hmm. they say, well, if I send this data with this encryption scheme, someone could break it with today's computer schemes. It would take hundreds of years. Right. Um, one of the really cool things about quantum computers is that they're really fast at some things because they do the operation in, in, in parallel, essentially. And there's an algorithm that was proposed uh, decades ago now. Um, I think it was in the 90s, uh, Shor's algorithm for, for factoring uh, numbers. Uh, and if you could make a quantum computer that could accurately execute this algorithm, it would break all of today's existing encryption. 
Right. And people know that, computer scientists know that, and they're working on quantum secure encryption schemes. And I suspect uh, because people know that this is coming, we're going to have quantum secure encryption schemes well before we have quantum computing. Uh, I think the thing to know is, well, uh, if you encrypt something today, it may be broken tomorrow. And that that's, I think that's always been true. Mm -hmm. uh, we know from the early days of the internet that some of the lower bit encryption schemes, even today's computers can, you know, can break really easily. And that's why we went from the 64 bit to the 128 to the 256 bit encryption schemes. But stopping talking about bits and, <laughs> and things, uh, you know, your, your listeners don't have to worry about someone uh, coming up with a quantum computer uh, that can, can break the internet encryption tomorrow. Right. Uh, but I think, I think personally we'll see it within our lifetimes. Um, that said, it's, it's probably, I would guess, a decade or more away, that kind right. of quantum computer. But there are other quantum technologies that are here today. You can buy a quantum random number generator that uses quantum mechanical principles to generate ran pure random numbers, right? Computers actually have a hard time generating a truly random number. You can buy a quantum random number generator, which is useful for many things. Mm. Um, you, like I mentioned before, you can actually buy um, uh, a quantum communication uh, links for, for sending <laughs> um, uh, entangled photon pairs on optical fiber networks to do guaranteed secure key distribution. It's very mm -hmm. slow. And they're generally, uh, as, you know, assembled in, in a sort of more tedious, difficult to integrate fashion. And, mm -hmm. and the dream is, can we go from these discrete optical components to, uh, to being able to put them and integrate them on computer chips? And so that actually gets back to, to talking about quantum dots, which maybe I'll go back because I've got, so I've got actually, if you see these vials behind me here yeah. on my desk, I've, I've got quantum dots. And that's what we as, as chemists and, and material science are making. And there's, there's, there's different kinds, but the kinds we make are made by chemistry. Mm -hmm. uh, they're made in beakers and test tubes. Uh, you see the students in the lab dissolving up chemicals using big syringes to inject them. You can right. make them in chemical plants on much ma more massive scales. And it's not made by people in bunny suits with, you know, uh, five nines pure uh, silicon precursors, right. yet you, you grow this semiconductor particle, which has, which has remarkable properties. In some cases, properties equivalent to what you would grow in, in the very best, very cleanest, you know, perfect vacuum environment, uh, uh, semiconductor, uh, uh, growth machine. And so, so the notion that you could take this, you know, cheap, dirty chemistry and make billions upon billions of quantum dots that have really desirable properties uh, and then put them in useful technologies like energy efficient, high definition displays that have photorealistic color that would, you know, let you watch the Super Bowl or, or the World Cup and, and, you know, see the color of the grass stains really accurately, right. but also at the same time, allow that physician, you know, doing telemedicine to, to see photorealistic color. Uh, you know, that's really compelling. And, and, you know, if you don't care about any of that, well, your iPhone display is going to last longer while you're running a movie <laughs> because you're more efficiently converting the batteries, you know, the energy stored in the battery to the light that your eye is seeing. Right. And so the movie, the movie is going to run longer. And uh, we go from that, then there's, it, it is, it is a very hard challenge. And that's, that's why we have this, you know, this five, hopefully 10 year 
center plan to, to study these materials to go from these quantum dots, which you know we can make in in vials and beakers. I'll show you some here. Um, these are in these are in plastic. They right. they look a little bit different color, and uh, uh, to be able to colors? put these. Does a different color kit. signifying anything? So these here are all made from uh, cadmium selenide. You can actually, oh, well, my uh, my flashlight. There it goes. Isn't that usually how it works with technology? The super yeah. crazy stuff is working, but the two dollar battery in the well, flashlight. Is, yeah, this is an ultraviolet flashlight. <laughs> oh, actually, wow, okay. you can you can buy this on Amazon. What it's actual use for? Is for if your pet pees on the floor, you can you can shine UV light around and do the CSI to find where your pet's peeing on the floor. So um, I like it. Uh, but you can also use it because your quantum dots will convert. Oh, and it's way too bright for the screen, so I'll try and pull it down. Right. You can see this one's it's it looks white, but it's actually growing orange. And this middle one is glowing blue, and this edge one edge one is growing. Yeah, I can see that. Uh, it, it's glowing yellow. Um, right. It's just saturating. I apologize on 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 this camera here. Um, yeah. And so. These are all the same material, uh, okay. all exactly the same material, but they're just different sizes. And so the color is controlled by the size of the particle. But when we make them now, they're not all exactly the same size. And I talked about atomic <clears throat> precision. We're just right. now at the stage where we can make semiconductor clusters, which are all exactly the same size. My colleague, uh, Brandy Kosert here at the University of Washington, uh, she's has one of the, the few syntheses for making a, a type of semiconductor called indium phosphide, where every single particle has exactly the same crystal structure. The mm. atoms on the surface are in the same place. The atoms in the middle are in the same place. And she can actually make crystals of the crystals. Mm. And so that's, right, that's revolutionary. And what we're hoping to do is, is bring that to more kinds of materials, larger size particles. And then <laughs> we can make the colors of these extremely pure. You already can go to the big box store order right order on amazon a quantum dot tv and you can look at it it does look better than a regular tv it's because the emission coming from those is already more narrow than any other technology for uh, for emitting light that your eye would see now why did you say it's revolutionary that. that she can make those crystals exactly the same why is that revolutionary have, have we struggled with making an exact <laughs> so it's funny for chemists to talk about atomic precision, because when you make a molecule, you normally talk about every atom in the molecule, organic chemistry. I've seen the pictures in my book. They're all the same. There's exactly. a red and two blue balls and two white balls. And an or <laughs> like I, I've seen the model. It's precise exactly. every time. <laughs> every water molecule is just like every other water molecule. That's why its formula is H2O. Right. Right. Um, but when we have these semiconductor particles, these semiconductor quantum dots that we're making in these in these vials, uh, this one actually you can see is so luminescent it's glowing right. just from the room light you can see the yeah. green coming back off there um these are so uh, th these particles are so big that it's not h2o it's uh cadmium twenty five thousand, selenium twenty five thousand, mm. and so when you put together twenty five thousand or fifty thousand atoms there's going to be a few missing here or there on the surface. It's a crystal. So it wants to go on forever mm -hmm. in its particular crystal lattice. Just like if you had uh, you know, little, uh, little interlocking Lego pieces, right? Every Lego piece has little uh, uh, points on the end to receive another Lego piece. Right. And so 
they, they just want to go on. So you have to break that up and you want them to be in discrete units, all like with exactly the same number of Lego blocks, the same number of atoms in them. And atoms like to have all their bonds filled and you mm -hmm. make the crystal and it doesn't necessarily do that. So to go from this really big, massive semiconductor particle that has pretty well controlled size and shape to being one where every single one is exactly the same. That's, that's a synthetic challenge, but we're on the cusp of doing it. We have some proof of concepts, uh, some you know, proof of demonstration for some right. materials classes. And uh, for other materials and other applications, it doesn't have to be exactly atomically precise. Not everyone has to be identical, but if you can improve on where you are today, then everything gets better. Your color purity gets better. Uh, your energy conversion efficiency can get better. <laughs> and ultimately, there's, there's this technological maturity and sophistication. You go from converting from one wavelength of light to another. So I, you know, I had this UV flashlight mm -hmm. uh, and convert that to visible light uh, of specific colors. And that's how most of your quantum dot displays are working today to going from converting electricity, not making UV light first, but directly pumping electricity into those quantum dots and having light come out. That's called electroluminescent. That's a more efficient way than generating, you know, blue UV light and then down converting it. Uh, and, and then moving from there to having quantum dots that are so well-defined that every photon that comes out of every quantum dot is indistinguishable, right? Is exactly the same as every other one. And that's actually a requirement for, for reasons that are somewhat hard to explain, but has to do with, you know, wave particle duality and interference, mm -hmm. uh, particles don't, the, what light won't interfere with it, itself if it's a different color. Uh, these these uh, uh, these photons, if we can make them all the same, because we made all the quantum dots the same, mm -hmm. then we can take the next step to incorporate these into the into the quantum technologies, and that that's why our center actually is. We have I've been talking a lot about the material synthesis, mm -hmm. but we have um, we have electrical engineers, and we have physicists who are studying the properties of these particles and how they behave uh, in different environments and at different temperatures. Uh, and, and we have mechanical engineers and electrical engineers who, have, who make devices who are talking about, well, you know, you've got it in this, this vial here. Okay, let's take it out of the vial and let's put them onto a computer chip. And that's, that's different from, you know, this is kind of like paint, right? I can paint this onto my monitor. And that's, right. that's really uh, about as hard as it is. I paint it onto my monitor. Some people even inkjet print it with their inkjet printer. And I can make light emitting diodes and I can make a vivid display. Right. But instead of painting it onto my monitor if I want to put a single quantum dot exactly where I want it on a computer chip. And then I want to do that 10,000 or a million times over to do integrated photonics or uh, right, uh, uh, quantum computing on a, on a, on a chip, then right, that's a whole nother level of integration challenge. And so to go back to your servers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, your, your server farms, you want to convert light uh, to, to electricity locally on the chip if, if you want to do that you need a material usually other than silicon to do that really right. well and so how do we put these materials that maybe we grew in the lab in a dirty environment and get them and put them on our ultra clean silicon chip so that's the i in in right. imod that's the integration part so all of that's the challenge we have to make the materials we have to study their properties and then we have to put them together in both conventional devices like light emitting diodes and displays and 
ultimately position them on chips to try and um, to try for integrated photonics applications. Two things that you, so I mean, gosh, I mean, I'm, I've only got a few questions here, but I'm I'm struggling to stay focused because there's so many things you're opening up. But just for the, our audience, if for our sake, I'm going to do my best. Couple things when you say a dirty lab, what I what I, the way I'm understanding <laughs> this, and I like your comment is. Uh, we have repurposed uh, chip manufacturing labs. Uh, one was uh, the old Cumon uh, facility in Richmond, Virginia, which is now a big data center. We're, we're expanding that. And, and um, the level of precision required for that facility, there's so much concrete, which creates a lot of carbon and a lot of mess mm-hmm. and a whatever, but they... That nothing, no machine could move. It had to be 100% standstill, the, the level of quality of air to move through there. And so a data center doesn't need to be anywhere near that um, robust. And by what the point I'm trying to make there when you talk about this in the lab is if you can make this material without having to create a f- facility that has to be as clean as a chip-making facility – you save on costs, the, your end product is less expensive, the impact to the environment is much uh, much less, it's much reduced, mm-hmm. et cetera. That's what it seems like uh, what you're saying. And then the, the second part of it is... Absolutely. You got it. Okay. Um, well, I'd like you to comment on that in yeah. a little bit more detail in just a second. But the second part of it is sort of, I think it's related. In the early days of compute in IT, and you probably know this, there was a lot of energy focused primarily on the um, processor, on the chip, and some on the memory. What we didn't mm-hmm. spend a lot of time or, or we had to get better at, especially when we went to cloud computing, was the relationship between processing memory as one group. We call that the uh, compute group, mm-hmm. the storage group, and the network group. So I could get mm-hmm. these processes running really good, and, and now I'm ready to save them to my network-attached storage, which is two cabinets down, and I've got this infrastructure to do that. And while I could compute really quick, I start choking on trying to move that amount of data over this mm-hmm. connection. And then I, now I need to store it, and I'm creating all of this space. And oh, by the way, backup kicks off on Sunday night, and so it all starts crashing down. So when you were talking about the integration between your chemists at the lab making the material and mm-hmm. these other related disciplines, the the physics groups, the mechanical engineer group, all of these other components coming together to figure out how do we how do we work together to take these experiments into real world things that helps help humanity helps humanity today, but also um, you know lets that physician, whether it's through augmented reality or virtual reality, really dive into. Uh, nanotech or, or very precision um, surgeries or diagnoses or, or whatever. So I started off with this sort of the idea of quote unquote dirty, which is another way of saying it's a less expensive, more efficient way to make the product. Mm-hmm. And two, the relationship between all these different people coming together to figure out how do we apply this really cool invention invention in our different disciplines. Yeah. Um well, there's a lot to unpack in that question as well. I'll I'll, I'll pick up on I'll pick up on the on the dirty thread. Okay. Uh, I don't think we're ever gonna don't think we're ever gonna completely give up on especially in IT <clears throat> on the the very the very clean very high purity semiconductor made in those expensive 
fabs that you're talking about that you're repurposing right. for data centers as the fab moves to the next generation. Right. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to say for some parts of the material, uh, ways that you thought you could never make a functional material before can work. Right. So especially for these materials that interconvert light and electricity, there are classes of materials that we can grow in the lab and that maybe we start off with this dirty, impure chemistry, but instead of having to go through, there's a lot of energy that goes into taking that, that sand, which is what silicon starts out at. Your computer chip starts out as sand, just like you get off the beach. Right. Uh, and that gets, that gets refined with a lot of energy to make pure silicon. So maybe we don't have to do that for all the materials. The silicon chip will be there, but if we want to handle that part you talked about, converting the electrical signals into light, whether it's to take it off the chip and bring it to that, uh, that storage right, that's two cabinets down, or whether it's in some uh, you know, near future environment where you're going to be doing sort of classical photonic communication between different parts of the chip to reduce uh, energy dissipation and heating on the chip. Right? Maybe you want to communicate faster between the right the the local processing ram and 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 the cpu <laughs> and you want to reduce energy dissipation right. uh, light travels without dissipating energy in in, in a wave gun. so you can do that mm -hmm. but but you have to convert the electricity to light with almost perfect efficiency and you can convert the electricity the light back to electricity with almost perfect efficiency and and so so some of these materials actually these 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 ones that are glowing green mm -hmm. they're doing that with almost perfect efficiency right now so you, you can make those, almost 100% of the photons that, that come in here as one color come out as a different color. And companies have even shown that when they put electricity in, 100% of the electricity that injects into the particle turns into light and comes out as light. So, okay, that part works. That's really compelling. Now, how do you put that in a, first in a computer monitor and then then move it into uh, into your computer chip. And there are companies doing that today, right? You can go to you can go to the store and buy a, a quantum dot display, um, and you can hopefully in the next decade start to to see computer chips that have integrated photonic integrated optical technologies on them that were positioned instead of by hand or by robots, maybe maybe by using clever tricks of chemistry to allow droplets to find exactly a place on the chip and then leave that, leave that quantum dot. Um, these are really, really small. Um, the particles in these vials I'm showing you, they're, they're five to 10 nanometers, billionths of a meter across. Maybe the biggest ones are 20 nanometers, billionths of a meter. So a human hair is uh, 50 to 100 microns, millionths of a meter. Mm -hmm. And so if, if, if you're a meter tall, there's a, a factor of, a, uh, of, of basically a million between how tall you are and how small that, uh, you know, uh, that human hair is, right? Right. And then go on down from there, uh, another factor of a thousand times smaller, that's how big these quantum dots are, right? They're, they're infinitesimal in size. So how do you position those? You, you can't actually make features of those sizes except in the, the highest end, you know, state of the art, um, uh, silicon foundries, and even then, it's it's only one dimension, right? Mm -hmm. One one axis of the transistor can be that precise. So so then, how do you position them? Yeah. And so, well, maybe maybe you don't have to position something that small. We can start with something that's small. One idea is then you grow a 
bigger shell around it and a bigger shell, and now you have a big ball. And if you did the chemistry right, you can move that ball and put it wherever you want, but you know the center of the ball is exactly in the center, so that dot is exactly in the center of the ball, and now it's exactly where you wanted it to be on the chip. Now, if you can do all of that while still getting electricity in and light out, uh, you've done something really exciting. So, <laughs> so those are the kind of ways you can imagine the chemists on one hand say, well, you, okay, you don't have to handle this particle that you could never touch. We'll make it bigger for you. And the mechanical engineers on the other hand saying, well, okay, we could never, we can never print droplets small enough to get that particle exactly where you want it. But if you make the particle bigger, we could, we could print those droplets. There's, you know, new kinds of inkjet printing print super fine droplets that you could have land and then dry and then land a particle exactly where you want it. I'm a, my imagination's running. It, when we take some of this tech and I, I, I realize that uh, as, a, uh, as a person that's just kind of brushed up against this in the most casual of ways, my imagination goes to a, a point in time. One, I'm a, fa- I'm a big fan and fascinated by 3D printing of everything from food to organs to materials. We've had a number of people on the show talking about different elements of additive manufacturing and next generation manufacturing. Mm-hmm. And and not just the tech of it, but gosh, if you could print your own replacement television parts in your home and you don't even have to order them because you know you're you, you've got the schematic and you just push the button and you know, we kind of chuckle about that now, but 20 years ago they were chuckling about you know, so many different things. And uh, look, we're getting bell-bottom pants are coming back into style, so who knew? <laughs> but I, um, one of the ways I started thinking about this was just, and I don't know if this is directly related to the type of material you're talking about. First, everything comes back to chemistry. I mean, mm-hmm. every single thing comes back at some point to chemistry before Everything's it... Everything's made of a material. Everything comes back to that. But the idea of... Going in, you know, when my house is re-roofed, instead of maybe traditional asphalt shingles or whatever, or even modern um, solar panels, that you can, you could put some kind of material on there and then just had it have it painted with light absorbing, um, you know, film or oh. whatever that's so resilient. Because where I where I started to go to was I noticed the uh, spacesuit on the board behind you. My dad worked on the shuttle for almost 25 years, was on station for 12 or 15 years. Um, I, space is really, into the exploration and the opportunity and the technology mm-hmm. around that's really interesting to me. How you take these things from your lab that not only help us get great uh, screens for our personal technology devices, but how do we extrapolate that then in, in not just, you know, the long term, but in the not too far away near term into these materials that are able to convert our driveway into energy or recharge our vehicle yeah. or all these different things? Well, let me, let me take you, you were talking to me with my iMod hat on. I'll, yeah. I'll take that off for a minute because yeah, that's please. really focused on the, on the displays and the optical communication side of things. And I'll put on my, my Clean Energy Institute hat on because that, that's, that side of, of my lab uh, focuses on, on clean energy challenges. And in particular, we look, on, look at exactly those kind of materials. How can you scalably produce with, with low energy input and low capital cost, very large area semiconductors uh, for applications like solar energy harvesting? And, and there it all comes down to the materials chemistry. Mm-hmm. And, Interestingly, there's scientifically, these challenges are very similar. 
Mm. So you wanted to make a material that was a near perfect emitter, right? That when light came in, all the light came back out. Or when you put electrical charges in and you said you can't go anywhere, they had to find each other and, and give off a photon to give off light. Right. And that's what you need to do if you want to make an efficient display or if you want to make right, a, a indistinguishable single photon source on demand for quantum photonics. <laughs> Intriguingly, those are exactly the same requirements to make a, a solar cell material that uh, approaches the theoretical efficiency limits. That's as, fish, as efficient as the laws of physics say that you could make it. And, and why is that? Well, when you sign light on something, a lot of times it heats up. Right. Right. And and you don't want you don't want to waste uh, the any of the light energy as heat. You want it to turn into electricity. So materials that, ironically, materials that glow really brightly, are also materials, if they're semiconductors, that in principle could be made to really efficient solar cells. And so we have these new classes of, of materials that we can grow with, with chemical synthetic routes that on one hand, we're thinking about putting into uh, computer chips and monitors, but they're, they're very close cousins. We're coding into to very large, uh, you know, uh, my colleague Devin McKenzie here at the Washington Clean Energy Testbeds, just a mile off campus is, is printing them on, on uh, meter wide substrates. Uh, like newspaper. And when you talk about additive manufacturing uh, and material and energy efficiency and benefiting the environment, <laughs> uh, you're talking about orders of magnitude reduction. Mm. So you're talking about for a silicon solar cell, tons of silicon that has to be refined and then chopped up into wafers and then laid out on right onto that panel. Right? You, if you've seen the panel, you see it has these subset of these wafers that came right. from purified silicon. Uh, to a thin film cell, and all of that leaves silicon dust and material, and that's all wasted energy that right. took to mine, refine, to ship, to transport. Right. Now, the it's 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 more 2D manufacturing because you're printing. You just need a really thin film. Right. But the concept of additive manufacturing again is key. You you put the material where you need it. Uh, you grow it exactly, and you 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 don't waste uh, much material, if any. And so now you go from tons to a few kilograms to generate the same amount of electricity. And, and to me, that's really compelling. And, and to do that with far less energy input and far less capital input so that <coughs> tomorrow <coughs> uh, or right, we're, we're not having to spend a lot of our energy budget to make new energy sources so we can scale up the deployment of, of uh, clean energy all that much faster. And, uh, and there's all sorts of other benefits, right? When you, when you get your solar cells installed, part of the installation cost is not, is not the cost of the cell, but it's, it's the work to, to go up and bolt them on your roof, to lay them down, to, to mount them and rack them. And uh, if you had materials that were flexible, you know, you said painting on, that's, that's, you know, that's the dream. You can you can actually watch. There's videos for these perovskites. Um, uh, my my friend uh, Dave Moore did a video at NREL when the department, the Secretary of Energy came. Um, I think uh, Rick Perry was visiting in the last administration, and right. you know they said, well, okay, here's our here's our electrodes, and they literally took the paint and they painted it on, and it was you know it's a bit of a parlor trick because you're sure. you're not going to. You know, you're not going to do this literally on your house today. Right. Uh, and they had the light on it. You could watch the electricity being generated as the paint dried. Right. And so, 
that that even that even blows my mind. So you you yeah. you are we're just a few steps away from for that solar paint. You probably won't be solar painting your house in ten years, but you will be able to buy materials that were applied in the same fashion, laid down in the factory, uh, just like you were printing a newspaper, and and produced much more cheaply at much larger scale, <coughs> and and that enables you to install it uh, cheaper. Uh, yeah, it's, so. I could go on on this for a whole other hour. What, just, just for me, one of the reasons why it's exciting is there's so many people that I know that have come, including myself, that have come to this conversation where we were, for whatever our reasons were, we weren't part of the conversation even five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. But with the idea of energy independence and what would it be like if I don't have to have a gas station right down the street for, you know, with however it is that everybody comes to the table, people are coming to the table here in Georgia, down one of our um, interstates on the way to Florida, they're building out these, um, we have a lot of uh, um, open pasture that that's not great for grazing and other mm-hmm. things. And they're putting in big solar farms. And that's what we have to do today. And nobody's against that. Absolutely today. But 20 years from now, hopefully, mm-hmm. instead of having to have those or in addition to those, to, um, to maybe paint is still two or three you know, orders of magnitude away. But my, my buddy bought a um, salvaged Porsche. And I was like, what mm-hmm. are you doing? So he had this $100,000 car completely rebuilt with a salvaged title for $25,000, I don't know. It was really mm-hmm. amazing. But instead of getting it painted, he had it wrapped. And so it's wrapped mm-hmm. with this beautiful, it's been several years now, and it looks remarkable how pretty it is. Huh. So what I'm thinking about is, as you're talking, whether it's painting or wrapping or whatever, our infrastructure, building tops, when we build bridges, with instead of having mm-hmm. to necessarily 20 years from now or 30 years from now build out big, massive farms of stuff, you can wrap the everyday infrastructure that we use, the vehicles we drive, the places we live, the surfaces that we drive on, in a way that's not offensive. It's not industrial. It's it's it looks like the environment around you, and yet it's able to constantly absorb, um, you know, the energy yeah. that's in the world around us and convert that on demand. Uh, Don Sadaway, who's a um, a uh, professor out of MIT, really smart guy. He's talking mm-hmm. about, um, you reminded me in your conversation, he's been on our show, he talks about grid-level storage. So if you've got these renewable mm-hmm. energy sources, mm-hmm. you've got to have grid-level storage. And he said, but when you make that, it's not just how much storage can you have, but it's got to do no harm to the environment. Like that defeats the purpose if we're trying to get green energy and we don't have the ability to store it in a way that's problem. It's got to be safe to operate. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be locally sourced so that it's um, in, it's inexpensive. And mm-hmm. the things that you're talking about remind me or um, remind me of that and that sort of on the same journey. How do we make these materials in a way that um, you know, kind of with those things, they're safe to operate, they they benefit us as human beings, and the goal is as we make them, they're not only affordable, they do no harm as we as we move forward with them. Yeah. The- those, those are all the exact points you want to make. So if we, if we cross over from optoelectronics in terms of communication to optoelectronics in terms of just energy harvesting, uh, it's clear that, that uh, semiconductors for energy harvesting and photovoltaics are going to be the most, the most manufactured form of semiconductor 
in, in the world. And so if you talk about, well, we're replacing uh, coal-fired power and, and uh, oil and natural gas, okay, we want to do that uh, with a system that has as low of environmental impact as possible. Mm-hmm. And so it, it all gets back to, you know, ma- partly to the materials themselves, but also to how efficiently you use the materials. So if you can additively manufacture uh, and do it with with less capital cost, then you you get to this vision of you can you can make and manufacture it locally. And that that actually becomes really important. Um, Right now, the majority of the solar panels sold in the United States are manufactured overseas. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about energy security, yes, Right. Once you install the solar panels, they're generating energy for 20, 30 years. But if we're getting a significant fraction of our energy, we're still going to be replacing those and we're still going to need a substantial domestic industry. And right. so you don't want to substitute dependence on a foreign oil source for dependence on a foreign semiconductor source. Right. And so <laughs> um, I think the you know, having the material science and, and the know-how uh, both from the the basic chemistry standpoint to the manufacturing standpoint, uh, you know, local here uh, is is really important, and and you know, it's it's exciting to see the progress that that's actually happening. Um, we're here. I mentioned the Clean Energy Institute at the University of Washington. We're really lucky. You probably knew uh, if you followed the the last election, right? Jay Inslee, our yeah. governor, uh, campaigned as a single issue candidate, right? He said. And you, you saw him in the debates and he said, I want to talk about climate. Right. And then everyone saw it and said, well, he's not going to win the nomination. And uh, but but I think I think he's on record as saying uh, he did that to elevate climate and energy as part of the, the political discourse in the U.S. And so I think that was a really important thing he did. Uh, but I also think that, uh, you know, we've been really lucky here in in our state for him to to stand up this clean energy Institute. And so we have, you know, we're, we're actually exploring the additive manufacturing of some of these new semiconductors. Um, they're different formulations actually of the same thing that I hold up here. They're, they're called halide perovskites. They're a really fascinating material. <coughs> um, uh, you know, perovskites, the most common crystal structure in, in earth's crust, but you have new formulations that people didn't realize had such amazing properties in, until less than 10 years ago. And now they're being used for displays on one hand and different formulations are being used for solar cells. So we're, you know, we're, we're printing those here. Uh, we have a partnership uh, with uh, the National Renewable Energy Lab. There's a consortium called uh, US MAP, US Manufacturing of Advanced Perovskites. Um, and that's, that's the goal of, of that organization is basically to say, okay, we have this new material. Mm-hmm. It looks like it could be super efficient for solar cells. Um, uh, can we... Uh, can we learn how to make it at scale? Uh, can we learn how to address the environmental issues with it? So some of the formulations right now have lead. So, you know, that raises a flag and you say, what are we going to do about that? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and to look at the life cycle uh, and, and to get manufacturing for those uh, here locally so that we can, we can regrow, um, you know, a, a massively scalable uh, U.S.-based uh, uh, solar industry. So yeah, that those are those those are hitting exactly all the points, and those are all of the current research topics, right? How you make them more efficient? How you make them live longer? How do you manufacture them with less material 
and do it reliably? Uh, how do you either take the lead out or make sure that, that any of the toxic materials in it never get into the environment, right? <laughs> um, uh, and so, you know, those are, those are all the active research questions that scientists are working on right now. And I, I, I think every year you look and you see the progress is just amazing. So there's actually a lot of startup companies working on these materials. Yeah, that's one of the things I was going to add. Well, two, um, quick comment. When I talk to my friends and neighbors, and, and I don't frame it in terms of a, a political uh, conversation, but frame it in terms of, um, uh, you know, we don't, as a nation, without going too far down this road, as a nation, why would we want to be dependent upon um, anyone outside of our borders or territories in, in any mm-hmm. way um, for... The materials we need for the energy we need for the whatever fill in the blank mm-hmm. and there is a lot of pressure a lot of well-documented and other podcasts have done it a very good job to talk about the pressure on rare earth materials and mm-hmm. um, the consequences of certain types of mining and just all this stuff around the world and the further you are away from your own borders um, the more vulnerable you get and the more uh, certainly to economic influence and consequences. Um, so, you know, how can we bring this back to our country where we can, um, we have the most control at the same time, not setting aside the, the goals of who wants to harm, you know, the, the environment around you that your kids or grandkids are going to grow up in. We've, we've got to do it in a, in a wise way. And what I found, yeah. uh, David, is that it transcends then team blue, team red, team purple, team whatever. It's we're for these things. Now, there's still debate to be had about what's the priority and how we do it. But, man, I, I would much rather have a discussion amongst friends and neighbors about how we're going to govern each other than how are we going to get the resources in that le- adds, as we've seen, f- forget a geopolitical, just a, you know, the results of the pandemic on supply chain. Yeah, no, exactly. And that's, uh, when you, when you think about that, these concepts like additive manufacturing, whether it's for adding value to, um, uh, to your display or whether it's for, uh, for making low cost solar. I mean, this probably touches on, you know, your, your, um, discussions about 3d printing that's that's one way to address that mm-hmm. so when you make a when you when you invest in a factory right, usually it's it, it's really expensive and the expense goes up with the complexity of what you're making so printing newspaper is, itself is still expensive but mm-hmm. you can print a lot of newspaper and you can buy a newspaper for pretty cheap you know if, if you're still right. into reading paper right but uh, uh if you make a silicon foundry right if you make a chip fab you have got to run that and you've got to run it at high efficiency and you've you've got to sell a lot of high value computer chips to pay off that multi billion dollar factory. Right. The same the same is true for for a lot of industry. And so if you can if you can decrease the cost of making that factory, right, decrease the the capital risk, then uh, you can be more agile in your manufacturing. Right. So if if we're talking about okay, instead of having to invest multiple billions to build the next solar cell plant in the U.S., you can reduce that by that capital expenditure, that CapEx by a factor of 10, well, now more people are going to take a risk at building that next generation solar factory, and you're more likely to have locally distributed production. Hmm. And, and another important thing is it's probably okay to 
to build a little bit more capacity uh, because the the capacity is so easy to build uh, so that you could you could ramp it up really fast right one 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 thing that keeps me up at night is if you look at right, rationally people aren't going to build solar capacity faster than they're going to be able to pay it back right mm -hmm. and so no one's going to say well um, this is where we think the the equilibrium market uptake rate is going to be we're going to be able to sell x panels per year but we really care about the environment so we want to get there faster Mm -hmm. uh, so we're going to build too many factories and then shut some of them down and lose money. Nobody's going to do that. Right. Right. And, and I wouldn't ask anyone to do that. Right. And so, but, but in that curve, if you reduce the cost of building factories, right, that slope just naturally goes up because you can make more money quicker and you don't have to run the factories as long before they pay themselves back. So the, just the natural risk you take. So, okay. But no matter where you are on the political spectrum, you say, okay, let's 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 think about some some focus investment and that kind of manufacturing technology and the material science and chemistry and physics that you know that underpin that, because that would that would be good, right? We would have more local manufacturing. Um, if if that's what you're looking for, you'd be able to to scale up and benefit the uh, the environment faster if that's what you're looking for. And no matter where you come at this problem, it looks like a win-win. Yeah. I, I agree. And it's, um, you know, there's a lot of, like I said, in my small circle of influence, there's a lot of enthusiasm when we change the way that we're having the conversation. One of the things I've seen in other industry is the private sector exploding with um, uh, people diving into next gen telecom, next gen, uh, you know, various technology movements. Are they doing the same thing here in um optoelectronics or is it primarily still the world of academia there is, there is some but uh, there is a lot more jumping into right into into it in in general mm. uh, and, and and that's it's partly because these materials based challenges are long term right and an algorithm so we're talking about scaling and manufacturing Right. An algorithm is the easiest thing to scale, right? You copy it right. and, and you, you sell it and, and, and it scales in the server farm. You don't need any factory or you need a limited factory. But we have to remember that all of that, all of those algorithms, all of that code is running on hardware and, and where that hardware is made is actually going to matter as well at some point. And so, so thinking about, anyway, to, to your question, right. uh, there is some. Uh, uh, my colleague uh, Arkham Ajumder here, who's part of our center, um, mm -hmm. has a uh, a company called a company called Tune Optics. Um, I mean, you you see the investments being made in in VR technologies. Right. I mean, those are displays and optoelectronics. <clears throat> the display right. industry is is huge, right? Right. Every 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 bit of information comes at us in a display, and so of course there's uh, there, there's big business there, but the pace of investment in in that space and in uh, and in the energy, the alternative renewable energy space is is much lower than the pace of investment in uh, in IT and in particular in software. Mm -hmm. And and actually, I've heard I've heard colleagues be frustrated by that. I've heard many people be frustrated by that mm -hmm. because they say, well, right, actually the the ability to make money quickly in in software actually undermines the ability to invest long term in some of these other other areas. And and, you know, there's a debate as to whether we're suffering as a society because of that or not, or whether 
you know, with the ability to make money quickly in software should therefore lead to the fast rewards in software. Right. You know, but the, the reality is the, the, the record, the world record for commercializing, uh, at least that I'm aware of a, a new technology stands at, at a little over a decade, actually approaching two decades from fundamental discovery in the lab to selling commercial product. And that was for these, um, these magnetoresistive hard drives, the, the colossal magnetoresistance that they, so basically these physicists discovered in the lab that when a magnetic field changed, it changed the resistance in the material. And they right. said, oh, we know immediately that this would be a drop-in replacement for the current technology that's being used in today's hard drives. And it would enable an order of magnitude increase in data storage. And it's actually what kicked off your data centers and, and that in, in the 90s, right? right. The, the, revolution, the revolution in density and cost in, in hard drives in the late 90s was enabled by this discovery. And even knowing that, and even knowing that that could happen, it took over a decade to go from fundamental materials lab discovery to commercialized profit-driven product. And because of that, there's a there's a lot of risk aversion, right? If you can say I I can invest in in uh, dog.com and you know double my money you know 18 months from now, why do I want to invest in uh, you know additive manufacturing of solar cells or why do I want to invest in uh, next generation quantum dots for uh, for displays or or maybe farther afield for you know further down the road for for quantum communication? So uh, yeah. There's some, uh, but but it's less than it is in IT. And I, I mean, and what you're just saying makes sense. Although I would have thought, one, that you'd have a never-ending line of students trying to show up to to be students in your lab, because really, what you're talking about is the ability to make invisibility cloaks. <laughs> And, you know, you're bringing chemistry with materials and uh, we've got a whole generation of kids raised on Harry Potter and my generation raised on uh, Lord of the Rings and, you know, D&D. And I would imagine to be able to get your lab to create a plus one or plus two invisibility cloak would be... Uh, you, and, you and me both, man. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, cast continual light. Um, let's go. Uh, but the uh, that that is actually... One thing that, that, that gives me hope, you know, when you look at the news and you see, oh my God, we're doing this to the environment, or we're doing this to the right. world. Like it is the continual stream of students that come in with the passion to to want to make the world a better place uh, that, that I think is just amazing. And so right now I feel really lucky to be blessed that we have a large number of really good students who are really passionate about uh, in particular about energy, whether it's uh, energy generation or energy storage. Um, uh, and that spills into the materials challenges. Uh, it spills into the optoelectronics uh, and the communications. And, and I see them and that's, you know, that's why I'm here sitting in this chair in, in, in the office of the university is, is the, the chance to work with them. So uh, yeah, there's, there's hope and it's, it's, it's the young kids. Or not so young. Yeah. Well, <laughs> the same age um, I was. I'm just old now. Yeah, but you still have that enthusiasm. I um, what's uh, uh, what's next up for your lab? I know the NSF. Uh, we talked about this in the beginning. Has recently uh, funded a uh, a grant that you're you and your lab are part of. What what's next up for your lab and for your uh, 
for yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, getting this getting this center up and running and and realizing this vision that I've been telling you about is mm. is what's up. So we just kicked off just this last fall, and so it's. Uh, it's roughly two dozen different uh, faculty and students a across the, a dozen different universities. And, and in the past, you would say, well, this is crazy. How can people collaborate across, you know, this wide, widely dispersed space? But, you know, in, in this day and age with COVID and, and Zoom, we've learned, yeah, we can do that. We can ship samples. Um, we have, um, yeah, it, what, what's next? is is doing just that it's it's making these atomically precise quantum dots it's trying to stick them first in in light emitting diodes uh, and then and then seeing if we can get those line widths narrower and narrower and then eventually uh, seeing if we can generate uh, uh, indistinguishable single photons on demand so can we generate you know, quantum technology so we can make um, uh, quantum photonic techno technologies uh, and and you know the things that quantum mechanics can do when you put it put it to use just just blow your mind in terms of communication measurement. Uh, you know, controlling the color of those dots is just the tip of the iceberg. When you mm -hmm. actually uh, when you're actually controlling the phase of the wave function, that's this current quantum revolution. It's just amazing. And uh, you know, I put my iMod hat back on, but of course, you know, I take that off. I put my clean energy hat on, and I'll tell you that you know. These same, these same solution processed semiconductors that we can grow in beakers, we can print like inks. Uh, and, and the step there is to learn how to manufacture them. And, you know, I told you about the colloidal particles being perfect, these quantum dots being perfect. Well, when you're doing meters and meters and meters of them, there's defects and they're not perfect. And so mm -hmm. we got to understand where those defects are when you manufacture them. And, and so that we can keep the efficiency as high on manufacturing scale as, as we're seeing in the labs right now. And the labs are generating amazing efficiencies com competitive with silicon. Uh, many people think they're gonna you know, um, uh, approach what gallium arsenide, which is the world record holder uh, uh, can do. And, and so you know, the sky's the limit in terms of what we can do in the lab, but it's translating that. So where are the defects that you know, come from manufacturing the surface of those Lego bricks, right? They're sticky. Right. That's chemistry. Those are those are not atoms. Those are not bumps on the Lego bricks. But what atoms are there, and how do you stick things to them? Um, and figure out, you know, where the bumps are and how we smooth it out. Uh, uh, we'll make these quantum dots better for displays, and we'll make the hopefully the same challenge, but on slightly different materials, is going to make the solar cells a reality. So, um, yeah, we're busy. Yeah, it sounds like it. So we've got quantum dots. How else are you thinking about using quantum for communication? That's a that's a great question, and it, it's not just me. So I mean, we showed the quantum dots, and the the size of the particle changes the allowed energy levels, and that changes their color. So right. quantum effects change color. That's around us every day. For communication, you're you're relying on some of the really weird measurement properties of quantum mechanics. Okay, and you've you've probably heard of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, right? If you watch a sci-fi movie, right, there's always some kind of uncertainty principle or, um, you know, Star Trek has its Heisenberg compensator for the, right, for, right, for your, uh, for your, your transporters, right? Right. Um, and uh, gosh, what did I just watch a movie on Netflix last night? The new one with Ryan Reynolds and Zoe Saldana, they had the, the dog was Heisenberg, right? But the right. Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Okay. So you've got, um, was the that the Adam that, project? 
the Adam Project or something Adam like Project. that. Yeah, 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 my yeah. kids, my, yeah. My the wife Adam and I Project. loved it. We're nerds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. my kids and I enjoyed that too. Anyway, <laughs> so back to, so why can you use quantum for communication? It's because of measurement. And the Heisenberg uncertainty principle is about measurement. People know uh, if they've had a college you know, physics course that the Heisenberg uncertainty principle tells you that you can't know a particle's position and its momentum at the same time. But really it's grounded in this quantum property of measurement that whenever you measure something, uh, you actually are changing the state of the system. And this is, you know, the Schrodinger's cat paradox, right? Is the cat dead or alive? And it's not really, right? It's not really dead or alive till you look in the box. Um, uh, and this was the thought experiment meant to, meant to, to show how our, our view of quantum mechanics was insufficient. But in fact, uh, every experiment people have done shows that that, that that is true, that the cat, right? Uh, that quantum states can be in two states at once. Mm-hmm. And then making the measurement forces them, right? It collapses the wave function. It, it forces them into one of those two states at the end. So that, that concept is at the heart of how you make a secure uh, a quantum network. So you, you send entangled photon pairs, and if someone's intercepting those, to, to determine what they are, they have to measure one, and that messes it up. Hmm. And so you and your partner that you're, that are, you're extending the message securely with know unequivocally that someone made a measurement of your photon, someone detected your signal before you did. So Wait, that's the key. Hold on, help me to understand that. So you're able to detect if somebody for lack of a better word, is spying on you or measuring? Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly uh, exactly what the guarantee of uh, uh, quantum cryptography is, is that if our quantum, secure quantum communication, rather, I should say, we should be more precise with my language, so that if you have a secure quantum link, uh, you would know with 100% certainty if someone is eavesdropping on the channel. And so it has to do with with how you measure the properties of the communication channel. But that all comes back to the fact that making a measurement in quantum mechanics changes what you measure. And in fact, the order that you make the measurement matters. And so you can do this experiment at home yourself. You can, uh, you can, you can take apart your favorite pair of sunglasses. Okay. If, they're pol- if they're polarized sunglasses, you can, okay. you can take it apart. Uh, or the next time you're at a 3D movie, if you're at the IMAX movie and they have the old glasses, right. the ones with the batteries won't work, but the, yeah. the old style, like the yellow ones with the polarized right. film, that works. Right. And so, uh, you know, you probably go, you've, you've probably done this, right? You have, uh, oh, my sunglasses are going to be too dark. So I have these films that are a little less dark, but if you don't it with the sunglasses without a okay. camera, it'll, it'll, your sunglasses will work for you. It's okay. the same thing. So you have these, these two polarized pieces of film. Right. And, uh, what these are doing, they look just like sunglasses, but they're letting light with only one kind of property through lights a wave. We talked about it's a wave that's oscillating with an electric field back and forth or up and down. So two perpendicular orientations. So this, this uh, piece of plastic essentially uh, says, if you have an up and down orientation, I'm going to let you through. But if you're left, right, I'm not going to let you through. And there's a you might ask, well, what happens if you're not up, down, or left, right? And that's that's a really good question. Right. So I have another piece of that plastic here. And the first thing you'll notice is weird is when I overlap them, you know, they don't really seem to get darker. Normally, if you take unpolarized sunglasses and you put two sunglasses in front of each other, it gets darker. But with polarized sunglasses, they don't really do that because 
you've already thrown away the polarized light that's not going to get through. So then all the light keeps going through. So you notice okay. something weird is starting to happen. And then the trick that you've probably seen your friends do in the IMAX movie is they turn them crosswise and you say, look, right? I can't see anything. Right. So, so you see that black square. Right. No light's getting through. That's because through the first polarizer, only light that's oscillating this way gets through. And then the second polarizer only lets light oscillating this way get through, so nothing gets through. Right. Now, here's the weird part. And this is, this is a little bit of a cheat because you can explain this with classical mechanics. But if, if, if your eyes and your camera could detect single photons, mm -hmm. this is actually what I'm telling you is actually true at okay. the single photon level. So every photon that's passing through this interpretation is correct, even though our cameras are looking at lots of photons. Right. So I take this third, this third piece. Um, uh, you know, I, w I would do the question. I'd say, well, what happens if I put this in front, right, right. Uh, at a 45 degree angle? You're going to tell me, well, it's 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 not going to do anything. It's already black, right? Right. Correct. At, le at least it's going to get darker. I put it in back. It's right. going to get darker. Um, and uh, I have my iPhone back there, so you can just see that there is a little bit of light getting through because my yeah. polarizers are not perfect. Yeah. Um, and I wasn't sure how the room light would be, that's so okay. that's my the flashlight on my iPhone. So now I'm going to take this and I put it in front. Okay, you still see the iPhone, yep. it's still, still dark. Put it in back. Now what I'm going to do is, this one's at 45 degrees, I'm going to slide it in between. You can see that there's a little more light coming through. Wow. So, okay, now it's going through more material, more filters, but, but, but more light is getting through. Right. So putting three of these together made it lighter than just two of them. And the weird thing is, is that the order matter, right? If I... Put the 45 degree polarizer in the front, it doesn't make it brighter. In the back, it doesn't make it brighter. But in between, right, and the light the light gets substantially brighter. So that's because when I make the measurement, it's changing the nature of the photon that gets through. And so uh, the first photon had to be up down. The, the the first polarizer only let photons that were up-down polarizer. The last polarizer, they can be left-right. But the middle one said, no, I'm going to make you decide, right? If you're, because I'm diagonal, so I'm going to make you decide whether you're, right, diagonal this way. or <clears throat> And he says, okay, uh, yeah, I'm diagonal this way. And so uh, now, if you're diagonal this way, he said, okay, I'm going to make you decide, because diagonal this way can be 50% up and 50% left-right. Right. So, that diagonal polarizer rotated the polarization of some of those photons, so then they could make it through the uh, the, the third polarizer. So, if that's really confusing, just look at the, the polarizers and say, "Wow, okay, now I can see with my own eyes something where the order that I measured it changed the outcome." Right. And that's the, that's really the key to the the making secure quantum communication is that the order you measure something, or rather, the act of making a measurement changes the system. And because of that, you can detect when somebody has measured something before you did, right? The, the statistics get changed. And so if someone's going there and listening to your conversation, you say, oh, someone, someone recorded that key. I'm not going to send you any more data, or I'm not going to use that secure key for my next banking transaction because that one's been, that one's been eavesdropped. So it's like the quantum version of your, uh, of your password checker, right? You know, on right. Your, your, your password manager, they tell you, we're going to search the web and tell you if someone's stolen your password. Right. Uh, it's the quantum version of that. You know, as soon as someone's stolen your password, you know to stop using it and you don't right. communicate with that channel anymore. Or even so. like a credit bureau says, hey, somebody searched on your name or, you know, there's an activity yeah. related to this. 
you should be aware of it. It may mean nothing, yeah. but um, by the way, just as a side comment, when you stood up there to put your phone back there, I realized yeah. you've got one of the deck chairs from the StarTech Enterprise that you're sitting in. Oh, do I? Oh, yeah. yeah it looks like... Uh, <laughs> I can't it's care a, if it's, it's an esports gaming chair, but I've been spending so much time in the chair over the last. <laughs> hey, you know what? Talk about uh, this. Funny you say that. We've had some esports folks on here, um, and they talk about one of the things that they're trying to innovate in is not so much the you know. There's a obvious innovation going on with the um, with the games and the way they communicate and the security around them, but also the ergonomics. You know, these mm -hmm. players are burned out by the time they're 25, 28 years old because of the toll on their body. And um, uh, which yeah. doesn't sound like a horrible thing because for the eight or 10 years, if you're in the top 500 e-gamers in the world, you've probably made several million dollars a year, which is a whole nother conversation, which just <laughs> blows my mind. How So when you're thinking about that, not just in around security, but that demonstration that you just gave us, how does that what are other ways that people might apply that? I mean, is that um, uh, beyond my my sunglasses? Can can I apply that to? I don't know the way. Um, can I sample? You know, if I'm running an an engine, can it tell if not necessarily because of some nefarious thing, but there's a there's an inefficiency in the way things are operating, or you know, not just somebody's spying on me or checking on me, but how how could I apply this tech? Um, or how do they imagine going in the future beyond just security? Yeah, and the answer to that is that there's a there's an infinite number of possible applications, and that's why. So earlier we were talking about how there's this. You, you were saying, well, is 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 a quantum computer going to break the internet? And I said, right. you know, not tomorrow, probably not for ten years. Right. But but before you get to that computer, that quantum computer that can do the the hard quantum problems with full error correction and many 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 qubits. You have other quantum applications that make use. They're they're actually quantum simulations that can can solve things like the traveling salesman problem and optimization problems. Um, you know, What's you can the actually traveling salesman problem. Oh, so the traveling salesman problem is uh, you have uh, you know this traveling salesman. He's got to visit Atlanta, Cincinnati, Detroit, Chicago, Washington D.C., and you know put in twenty other right. cities. Um, What's the optimal path for him to to go among the among those cities, gotcha. and and so that's that's a class of optimization problems that that takes a long time for computers and doesn't doesn't have a mathematical proven optimal solution, and right now there are computer algorithms that do a pretty good job at it, but is the the bigger the the bigger the prob optimization problem gets, the more expensive it, it is, right. and that's one where a, a, because it can do things in parallel. The operations on the qubits at the same time, the quantum com the quantum computer or the quantum simulator can solve this problem uh, faster uh, with less less resource than a conventional computer could. So that's one of the early targets. But but even when you get out of computing, you know that the fact that quantum measurements are super sensitive. I gave the example of the order that you're measuring. Right. One of the reasons is that it's so hard to make a quantum computer is that those qubits are sensitive to anything in the environment. Mm. And so there's a whole <laughs> there's a whole group of, well, if life gives you lemons, let's make lemonade scientists that say, well, that's not a bug, that's a feature. Mm -hmm. Let's make quantum sensing. Let's detect, let's detect gravity with very high precision. Let's detect 
electric fields with very high precision. Let's detect magnetic fields with extremely high precision. <clears throat> and so there, there's a whole subfield of quantum sensing where people are saying, okay, I can detect the magnetic field from a single atom. And so maybe I could map out, uh, map out the structure uh, using magnetic resonance, which is, it's like, maybe I can do an MRI, right? When you go to the hospital and they tell mm -hmm. you, okay, you've got to, you, you, I don't know, you did disc golf elbow, right? You've, right. Uh, you've got inflammation in your elbow from too much disc golf, you know, just take some ibuprofen, take it easy right. for a couple of weeks. Um, that you could do that on a single molecule and you could see where all of the, right, all of the, uh, the atoms in that molecule are in a protein, in water, right. or right, all, sorts of, all sorts of crazy things that it could enable. So just incredibly sensitive sensors are, are one possible application of quantum technology. Um, and so there, right, there's, there's a whole continuum before you get to this, this quantum computer that, uh, you know, that lets you go back in time and download yourself into, right. into somebody else, right? That, um, I don't know, have you seen yeah. Travelers on Netflix? Yeah, that one's a good one too. No, I saw, um, uh, what was it? Um, carbon, something carbon. Where, Alter uh, Carbon. Alter Carbon, yeah. Yeah, that, I, that series is dark. It is. Uh, and I it, think philosophically i think i think he has realized a truth and i am i am happy that we are mortal for that very for the for, for because of that series which is but, you know what's interesting is we say we're, we're going to spend a lot of time on this but only only in that you know uh i i've got some folks coming on in the near future one of my conversations around ai it's it and the ethics of ai and all these other things is human beings since the earliest cave drawings have been how do we make ourselves like the gods how do we how do we improve happiness or remove sadness how do we extend our life to you know avoid death how do we these other things and um the other truth that comes along with that is man we have these unintended consequences with human beings whenever we break in a significant way um, design. So if we don't move very much, we atrophy. Mm -hmm. If we don't sleep well, we atrophy. If we, mm -hmm. and, and so there's so many conversations, philosophical conversations about, um, stress and the modern work life. And, you know, COVID's really sharpened a, a focus on that. So how do we have this balance of what are the right boundaries? And I think they vary per human being. I know they vary per me of, opportunity and pursuing things, right? I don't want to have to walk five miles for clean water or get avoid getting eaten by lions or things like that. But I don't want to have so much opportunity that it, uh, for myself, I end up in a ditch, uh, you know, doing all things that are bad for me. And everybody's personal uh, boundaries are probably different. But that mm -hmm. idea of trying to get our consciousness onto silicon or, our, or, or you know, develop these things... Um, so we've got some folks coming on to help us uh, understand that. But as you're talking about quantum computing, what it reminded me of is when I think of a quantum computer, am I imagining, you know, the Watson computer of the 50s that fills a room? Or am I imagining, is this going to be something that can fit in my hand or and can go on my vehicle that's constantly altering the screen that I'm looking at for the optimal uh, experience or the optimal route, you know, or, or all of these yeah. different things. What do you think that looks like? So, so 
now we're getting into we're we're, we're getting into science fiction but i think uh it's a, it's a guarantee that the first one is going to be like the watson computer that fills a room right and uh the question of and one of the reasons for that is because uh quantum systems are so sensitive to their environment and one of the things in the environment that destroys them is any fluctuation vibrations moving so you you cool it right. to super cool temperatures close to absolute zero and and right now you so you need giant refrigerators uh to cool things down and that's not to say that you you either can't make refrigerators smaller right uh uh there's there's actually lots of basic research going into that right now because people think well we're going to need refrigeration for quantum computing for a long time let's invest in cryo coolers that that are more efficient and smaller uh and that's not to say that eventually you won't disco- discover quantum systems that are protected either either topologically or because of of they have special structures um, that that protect them from fluctuations in in their environment so that they're robust and that you could operate them at room temperature. Um, Those are all those are all really in the early drawing board stages right now. So that today's early quantum computers, when you see these demonstrations from IBM and Google and others, uh, their their early quantum computers are, are all working at super cold temperatures and take take huge rooms, even though they mm-hmm. only have a handful of bits. Right. Right. Um, uh, and that's probably going to be the, the case for, you know, certainly the near decade. future. Yeah, yeah. Cer- certainly the, the near decades. Right. You know, but but ultimately, you know, maybe they do get miniaturized. I mean, the the slide I show, <coughs> um, you know, the optics experiment, we're trying to get all of these integrated optics sources in IMOD. The slide I show you is today that optics experiment, it takes a laser table. It's like an eight by 12 foot experiment, right? And you say, mm-hmm. well, this is a this is a quantum optics experiment. We're trying to take that eight by 12 foot laser table, which is, an, which is a, you know, today's optical version. And we're trying to put all of that on a chip. And mm-hmm. so all of the things that we're doing with atomically precise synthesis, with, you know, exploring new ways that we could additively add those quantum dots to existing silicon chips to integrate them, uh, and looking at device designs, right? How do we do the electrical engineering and the physics of that device? That all that all is part of that. Like, how do we take this room size thing and make it down to something smaller? And that's just on the optical communication front. That's easier to do without cooling it to to four Kelvin. But um, right. maybe we have to. Maybe we're still going to have to cool that to you know to millikelvin temperatures. Even who knows? Well, it's it's a fascinating topic. I have one. Uh quick question that I didn't ask um, yet I want to ask you about and that is uh, and it may be completely unrelated and this may still be in the world of sci-fi I'm sure you've seen the web app that Google has of translate and there there mm-hmm. there are other competing apps that are working um, towards this and a number of people have begun you know they have them on their uh, mobile device and they they're tra- out traveling the world and they'll speak their question and they hold it up for the the Portuguese or the Japanese or whoever they're talking to, and it, it goes back and forth. I wonder how far we are from a, you know, I can wear my cap or my helmet or whatever, yeah, and I can combine that translate, but also with an optical um, experience, so that as I'm looking, I can see, for example, into uh, different spectrums of that my mm-hmm. my eye might not normally be able to see, but now these things, these cameras or whatever the interface is, or as a physician. It can take a spectrum that I can't see and convert it into something that I can see and draw a conclusion mm-hmm. of. Is that anywhere near this um, uh, 
optical electronic world that you work in? So we're not doing that. Um, mm. But that that kind of augmented reality, you want you want Jordy's visor, as I think. Yes, exactly you say. right. But uh, uh, that that is that is is possible with with today's technology, right? So you could uh, you could make uh, sensors that that operate in the UV, that operate in the infrared, uh, and you could fuse those with augmented reality display. Um, that could be. You know, <clears throat> That that's achievable. It sounds like science fiction, but that's actually achievable with today's science. Um, and and you probably have some of that, right? So if if you drive a car with smart safety systems, right, it's kind of doing that, right? It may not be overlaying a display, right. But when your parking sensor goes off in the rear, that tells you you're this far away from something uh, on your your backup camera. It often has a radar or a lidar that's measuring the distance with you know invisible. Uh, frequencies of, of radiation that's calculating that distance and overlaying that information, the part you need, which is the distance on your display. And heck, if you've ridden with somebody that has a, you know, has a Tesla, right? You see it's, it's even telling you like what's, that's I think uh, a mostly optical on the Tesla, but it's overlaying, well, that's a car, that's a traffic right. cone, that's a, and it's processing that. And, you know, you can overlay that on, on, on your vision as well. So, I mean, that's, that's here today. And yeah. I think it's only going to amplify I know flight sims and the military have those in there. Drones have them into, yeah. uh, you know, the higher end drones. And just to just to miniaturize that, you know, <laughs> another piece of the cyborg armor, um, you know, that is we our exoskeleton that we're assembling. It just seems like, uh, you know, I see applications in scuba diving. I see applications okay. in uh, medicine, just, you know, all yeah, kinds actually, of things. One of the applications for doing that uh, augmented reality display is can you have a display that's small enough and bright enough with high enough resolution that you can overlay that with your real world bright display? Right. And so uh, one of the ways to do that is with a, a very, very small, very high resolution display, but it has to be super small and also <clears throat> super bright. So what you need are these are probably heard about micro LEDs. Mm-mm. It's, you know, the, one of the, the new trends in display technologies, you're basically making the, pixels of your light emitting diodes smaller and smaller right uh, and they're making displays with them now can you make them small enough and bright enough that you could put a full hd display right in the the corner of your glasses and then have it project and reflect off so that you see that image overlaid with everything you see and that's like they're not great yet like if you go to the if you go to one of the tech stores right you can get ones that have sort of low res like like old sort of VGA or, right. or um, super VGA, like 600 by 800 pixels. And they're, if you go out in the bright sunlight, they kind of get washed out. Mm-hmm. So we're not there, but uh, we're on the path. We're on, we're on the path. And that's actually one of the near-term applications. I keep holding up my green ones, right? right. But that's one of the near-term applications for materials like that, because you could make a very small uh, light emitting diode and you could have very high efficiency and make it very bright. So, uh, you know, I like to think that things like the medical applications of that are, you know, the things that those, those are the ones that come obviously to mind, but I mean, it's just whether you're getting directions when you're walking or uh, you can, you can think of ubiquitous applications. It's probably going to be like your cell phone, right? When all the, th- you didn't realize all the things you could use it for until you used it. So, yeah, that, I think that's coming. That's, it's partly already here even. This area is so fascinating to me. We obviously couldn't cover all of it in this conversation. If people want to learn more about 
um, the Center for IMOD or, or mm -hmm. uh, the other things going on in your lab? Where can they find more information? Yeah, so um, thanks for asking. So they can, they can go to the IMOD website. Um, I'm going to... I'm, I'm probably going to we'll get have it a link down below, but go ahead and it's, say, uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, I always, I always reverse things. Right. So I'm going to say like STC dash IMOD, uh, but it's probably IMOD dash STC.org. Um, and then, uh, if you, if you Google, uh, university of Washington, clean energy Institute, you can find out broadly about the clean energy work that's going on here. Uh, and I would say you could, you, they should also check out the, the U S manufacturing for advanced perovskites consortium, U S map. Mm. Uh, which is which is headquartered. Uh, my friend Joe Barry at NREL runs that. He's a he's a fabulous guy. You should go check out uh, check out uh, what they have on on that site there, um, and learn more about uh, perovskite PV technology. Um, we have some of that on the clean energy side as well. But uh, I'd I'd rather say, if they're just getting into it, you know, take the national perspective. Right. Um, you know, I, I'm happy to tell you what we're doing. But if you're just dipping your toe in for the first time, look at what's going on across the country. Well, we'll start there, and um, you've got my personal email so that when that invisibility cloak needs beta testers, I'm your guy. I appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Thank David Ginger, thanks for coming on the show today, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was fun. It's our great pleasure. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We'll see you next time on the QTS Experience. <laughs>